Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to see you. Boy, you know, last Sunday we were gathered here and looking out the window, and it was just snowing like crazy. Yeah, yeah. What a difference a week makes, huh? We need to pray hard again for more. Yeah, but uh, no, that was a great week. Great storm. And uh, if you were not with us last Sunday, we're sorry if the snow kept you away, but you're here today. And you got your time change, right? You got your clocks worked out. So oh, good on all fronts this morning. Well, welcome to the Bible Church and to our time together enjoying God's Word. And if you're visiting us for the very first time, an especially warm welcome to you. And if we can help you, uh, if you are in the market for a new church family and you're moved to the hill or whatever, we just would love to be that church home for you. Just let us know how we can serve you and, and answer questions for you. We'd be glad to do that along the way. Well, my name is Tim, and it's my privilege to help us enjoy God's Word together as part of our worship and really part of our run-up this morning to gathering around the Lord's table and remembering the incredible gift of our salvation, which is what we've been singing about here in these opening songs, and I appreciate the worship team so much. I invite you to take your Bible if you brought that with you this morning, and if not, raise your hand and we can share a Bible with you. And join me in the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, But toward the end of that book, Matthew chapter 27, where Kassan was reading for us um, a moment ago, and I just love it when the Word of God is read well, and and Kassan did a beautiful job of introducing us to the passage and the place where we're going to be hanging out this morning. Um, There is a little note page in your bulletin if you uh, would grab that as well, and I very rarely have a place for you to fill in anything, a blank spot of any kind. Normally, I don't do that to you in case you don't have a pen, but this morning, if you have a pen, grab that pen because there's one fill in the blank along the way here today. It is our privilege this morning to return once again to the amazing drama of Jesus' crucifixion as we move closer to Easter and to resurrection truth, which is at this point now just four weeks away. And helping us to get our hearts ready for that joyous time, we've determined to enter into the realities of Jesus' pain and suffering on the cross on Calvary Hill, all of that for you and for me. And we're using this these weeks to prepare us and to be the prelude to Jesus' resurrection. To do that, we are joining Jesus at those very special moments when he spoke while he was nailed to the cross. Seven times the scriptures tell us he spoke, and today we are taking up the fourth of the seven words, as you can see there on your note page. And, and, oh, church family, these are horrific words today, terrible words for Jesus. They are life-giving words for us, but they are terrible words for him. And that will become evident in just a second. But in case you haven't been with us so far, we've shared three of Jesus' crossword statements together. Jesus says, uh, the very first statement as a prayer, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And those words were spoken as a prayer to God for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness, a, a real window into the heart of our Savior. The second statement was spoken to a rebel who was hanging on a cross next to him. Jesus says to that that man, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And we shared those words. We were were sharing words of salvation. And then last time, the third cross word came to us out of John 19, 
words that Jesus spoke to his earthly mother Mary and his disciple and friend John. He says to Mary, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Jesus says, Here is your mother. And with those words, uh, we saw the love and the care that Jesus had for Mary's physical and spiritual welfare. And he takes care of her even as he's hanging from the cross. An amazing uh, window again into his heart. Today, the fourth crossword comes to us. And do you know which one this is? Yeah, the most terrific words I say again that have ever been spoken by anyone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As I said a moment ago, words of unspeakable anguish, but life-changing, life-giving words for us. We, we find them in that place where your Bible is open now or your iPad or your phone, whatever you're using, Matthew's crucifixion account. And I do have to confess to you um, that I feel like someone who's been assigned the job this morning of emptying the ocean with a teaspoon. I, I, I just can hardly express the difficulty that I feel as I read those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then have the task of, of maybe bringing them uh, out into the open for us a little bit more. They are words that are just so deep, so laden with truth that they, they really do defy explanation. The ancient songwriter David says in Psalm 37, 25, I have never seen the righteous forsaken. And yet here in verse 46, we look on as the most righteous person of all, God's own son is forsaken and by none other than his father in heaven. So we really do have our work cut out for us today, church family. And, and though we know going in we're going to fall short of really exploring this and all of its riches, uh, it is worth our time to spend moments together with Jesus in this fourth word. And if all we get out of our time together is just a glimpse into the truth behind the words, I believe our thankfulness and our gratitude for what Jesus has done for us our understanding of what it means to be saved, what it cost Jesus, what it cost our Father in heaven to enable us to be able to have forgiveness and to have the hope of eternal life. I believe that if nothing else, we come away with a deeper appreciation and love for God uh, just by hanging out with this fourth word for a little bit of time. These truly are words like no other words. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come now, open our hearts, open our minds. We're ready, are we, church family? We're ready for what the Holy Spirit wants to give us. On that little note page that you have, we ask the question, what does Jesus' fourth crossword reveal to us? What do these words reveal about Jesus? What do they reveal about our Father in heaven? What do they reveal about us this morning? What are the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do they show us? Well, no less than five truths are going to emerge out of this time that we share. First, these words will let us know what the ultimate effect of sin is, and we're going to explore that together. They reveal how intensely God hates sin in our lives and in our world. We gain some insight into 
Jesus' prayer that he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane because we have these words from the cross. These words also reveal salvation's central truth, which is the fact that we desperately need a substitute in our lives. And then these words will also expose Satan's deadly lie to the world. And so much is packed into this fourth crossword. Let's take a closer look at each one of these with the time that we have this morning, beginning with the first one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Near the bottom of your note page, first of all, these words would show us sin's ultimate effect. You know, no one can live in our world and not be personally familiar, intimately familiar, I would say, with the effects of sin. Its effects surround our lives. We live with sin every day and with its fallout. Envy, murder, deception, broken promises, broken laws, hatred, war, terrorism, drug-ravaged lives, alcohol addiction, pornography, child abuse, sexual exploitation, greed, perversion, rebellion, revenge, selfish ambition, lies, pride, and on and on and on it goes, right? This is our world, and we live with this every day. And these are, of course, just some of the grievous effects that result from sin. But what is sin's ultimate effect, church? What is its ultimate effect, its most disastrous consequence? What is it? In one word, I would submit that it is separation. You can write that word separation there in the only blank on your note page, and the only blank you rarely ever get anyway. Write the word separation. Whenever I write the word or, or see the word separation, I always go back to my seventh grade English teacher who said, kids, remember there's a rat in separation. I never misspell separation for that very reason. S-E-P-A-R-A-T-I-O-N. There's a rat in separation. Sin's inglorious crowning achievement is that whatever it touches, it separates, doesn't it? It always separates. Here's what Romans 6.23, the first part of the verse, says on this subject. For the wages of sin is what? It's death. The wages of sin is death. The Holy Spirit in no uncertain terms in the first part of this verse is saying that the paycheck, the wage, the result, the effect of sin in our lives is death. It's death. It's the price tag that dangles off of every single sin that is committed. Whether I commit it or you commit it, anyone commits it, that's the price tag. And by the way, just so that we're all on the same page, the the Bible defines this thing called sin uh, as missing the mark. Sin comes from the Greek word hamartia, Uh, which is an archery term. And the Holy Spirit borrowed this archery term from uh, first century to communicate to us what sin really is. Sin means to miss the mark that God says we are to hit with our lives. That's sin. Whenever we sin, we disobey God and we miss his mark. Harmartia. And with our words or with our thoughts or with our actions, we commit sin. When we do that, 623 says sin pays us a wage. 
And the wage it pays is what again? It is death. Earlier in Romans, we are told more than once that we have all missed the mark. Would everybody who has missed the mark be willing to raise your hand? Yeah, nobody will keep their hand down. We've all missed the mark. We've all sinned. And so consequently, we all earn the wage of what? Death. Yeah. But, but here's the thing we really need to understand about the word death as the Bible uses that word. We might most readily think of death as the lifelessness that comes when our bodies wear out or they are injured and, and they can't sustain themselves any longer. We call that death. When we stop breathing, we die. But that's only part of what the Bible is thinking about when it talks about death. And it's not even the important part. The Bible would want us to first and most fundamentally think of death as separation. On a physical level, when we die, what happens? Well, we are separated from this physical world, aren't we? We're separated from the physical environment. We are no longer part of the material world. Physical death separates us from that. But the Bible says that we're not just physical beings. We are spiritual beings, and the real us, who we really are, since these bodies are just a a tent that we occupy for a relatively short period of time, uh, the the Bible tells us that we are going to go on after our physical body dies because we're a spiritual being first. So when the Bible talks about death in Romans 6.23, it's not just thinking about physical death it is thinking about a spiritual death as well 623 says sin pays a wage the wage that it pays is physical death but also spiritual death and what does that mean well that means separation from who separation from god that is the ultimate effect of sin separates us from god Yes, sin produces physical death, but that's not the ultimate consequence. If we think back to the opening chapter, chapters of our, in our Bibles, back to Genesis chapter 3, back to the Garden of Eden, and we remember together that terrible moment when sin entered the relationship between our first parents, Adam and Eve, and God, when we remember that moment when they disobeyed God and they missed the mark, they sinned. When we remember back to that moment, do you remember what the effect of the sin of Adam and Eve was? The very first effect? Do you remember what they did? They went and hid, didn't they? They ran from God, hid themselves from Him because they had sinned. Instantly, their sin brought a separation to the relationship. No more intimate communion. No more fellowship between them and God. That was the effect instantly of their disobedience. No more sharing of one with the other. Now there's alienation. Now there's distance. Now there's separation. Because that's what sin does. It always separates. It does it on a human level between people. When sin enters a relationship, there's going to be separation. And it does that on a spiritual level between people and their God. 
And the Bible says that unless that sin in our lives is dealt with, the separation that results from sin becomes an eternal separation from God in a place called hell. The worst possible death. That's the ultimate effect of sin. It's separation from God and hell. Well, as we come back to Jesus' fourth word from the cross, would you agree with me that these are words of separation? Would you agree with me there? Yeah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Surely those are words of separation. There's no mistaking it. These words spoken by Jesus are words of distance. They are words of alienation. They are words that reflect a devastated relationship. Words of being cut off and alone, terribly alone, forsaken, Jesus says, separated. And we say, well, wait a minute, time out here, wait. There's something wrong, there's something very wrong. Jesus is the sinless Son of God, right? There's no sin in His life, there's no sin in Him. There should be no separation between Him and God. There should be union. There should be intimacy. There should be relationship and fellowship and an unbreakable bond. Jesus never sinned. That's the way it should be. But in this moment, that's not the way it is. And that's when it hits us. That's when we remember what actually happened to Jesus as he's hanging on the cross in this moment in Matthew 27. What happened is painfully described for us in another verse found in another book, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You may want to turn there. We've put the verse at the bottom of your note page there. We'll also put it up on the screen. And in fact, church family, I'm going to invite you to read this verse with me. Can we read it aloud together? Let's do that. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, read that one more time slowly to yourself. Linger on the phrases. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, sinless son Jesus becomes sin contaminated son. Sin infected Jesus. Sin marred. Not with any sin that he had committed, but with every sin that we have committed. Yes? That's what the verse says. The Father places on Jesus our sin, every sin, and then Jesus experiences the ultimate effect of that sin in his person while he's hanging on the cross. All the separation from God that we should be experiencing because we are the ones who have sinned against God is now being experienced by Jesus on the cross as he assumes the penalty of our sin. He is made to what? Be Sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 has been called the great exchange. I love the thought. 
In simple but sincere faith, we believe in our heart that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. God took our sin, all of it, placed it on His Son. When we make that faith commitment to Jesus, we are giving Him our sin and all of its effects. In fact, the greatest effect, which is separation. We give that to Him. He assumes that willingly, lovingly. And God the Father, witnessing that expression of our faith in His Son, transfers, the word is imputes, He transfers Jesus' righteousness onto us. He forgives us along with all of the the benefits of a restored relationship between a holy God and sinful us. No more separation. He imputes that back onto us from Jesus to us. So that when God looks at us, having trusted in Jesus' death for us, God no longer sees our sin, but rather receives the righteousness of His Son applied to our life. It is the greatest deal in the history of the world, is it not? It's a great deal for us, but it means that Jesus must say those horrible words in our place, doesn't it? Jesus' cry from the cross of anguished separation from His Father, it's not so much, I don't think, a personal cry, it's, it's, it's our cry which He willingly chooses to speak for us. Think about that. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? He says those words so that we will never have to. Oh, we say, what, what love. Jesus cries out in the anguish of utter abandonment. He is experiencing something he has never, ever known. The ultimate devastating effect of sin. Isolation, aloneness, distance, separation from God. He has never known that. But that's what hell is all about. It's the place where God is not. And don't miss this detail in Matthew's account when, as Kassan read for us in verse 45, she, she read that it was dark... From noon, he he was hung on the cross at nine in the morning, and at noon it gets dark. Darkness falls over the the whole land. And I would submit to you that that darkness is a physical outworking of a spiritual reality that is unfolding between God the Father and His Son. The utter forsakenness of Jesus by the Father is captured in the darkness. He hangs there in the dark, alone, forsaken by His heavenly Father because of you and because of me and because of our sin, our sin, which produces this horrific ultimate effect that He endures so that we will never have to. Oh, what love. But not only do these words reveal that to us, church family, they also show us in a very powerful way something about how much God hates sin. I'm going to flip your note page over. Jesus' words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are they not a window into the heart of God and how He looks at sin? It's been observed that if, if one carefully and deliberately just looks at the hill of Calvary as Jesus is dying on that cross... Four things cannot be missed just as you look at it. 
One is the, the true depravity of the human heart as mankind nails God to a cross. And, and, and honestly, we all share in that depraved act, don't we? We all do. Even though we were not there, our sin is in effect what put Jesus on that cross. And so we drove the nails into his hands and feet as much as the Roman soldier did that day. On that hill, we see Satan expressing his intense hatred of God, trying with all of his might to put an end to God once and for all, and he thinks he succeeds. Third, it has been said that we see the ultimate expression of love at the cross, that we can look nowhere else in in the universe to find a greater demonstration of love than what we see in that moment on Calvary. And then fourth, at the cross, it is said, we get our best and our clearest view of how much God hates sin as he pours out the full cup of his wrath, not upon us, but upon his son, Jesus. How much he must hate sin if he is prepared to do all of this that he does to his beloved. That's a real window into the the hatred that God has for sin. And I hope you see that. As a matter of fact, if you want a perfect companion verse to help explain Matthew 27:46, then jot down in the margin of your Bible next to that verse this reference, Habakkuk 1:13. Here's what this verse says as the Holy Spirit reveals something about God through an Old Testament prophet. The prophet speaks about God and says this, "Your eyes are too what? Too pure, too holy." to look on evil, to look on sin. Habakkuk, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that sin, any sin, is so offensive to God in His holiness that He cannot what? He cannot look at it. He cannot look upon it. He cannot have fellowship with it, surely. No wonder as Jesus in verse 46 takes our sin into His very person, God the Father must do what? He must look away. He must turn away. He can do nothing else. As Jesus hangs on the cross, as He fully embraces every sin that you and I have ever committed, along with the rest of the human race, through all of time, past, present, and future, as He embraces sin on a scale that we can't even fathom, the Father's eyes, which are three times holy in Isaiah 6, must close. And his vision must be averted. And he must forsake his son. Because his son has become what? Sin. Our sin for us. If someone were to ask you, and and everybody who's ever been a parent, your children have asked you this question. Mommy, Daddy, is there anything God can't do? Right? What parent doesn't get asked that question? Is there anything God can't do? You know, we can always have a ready answer for them because of the words of Matthew 27, 46. Well, yes, honey, there is something that God can't do. He cannot look on sin. He can't look at sin. There was nothing the Father could do in this horrific moment but turn away from Jesus because of his hatred of sin. Nothing he could do but turn away from his son who had never for an instant not been in his heart, not been in his view, not been in his embrace from all eternity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
reveals to us all we will ever need to know about how God thinks about our sin. Would you agree? In this horrific moment, the sinless Jesus has become the repository of all things evil. He has become our sin. The holiness of God and His hatred of sin means Jesus must hang alone in the darkness of divine abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me are the only words we need to hear in order to know how much God hates our sin. He never says, well, you know, that's just a minor little thing you did. Ah, That's just... Yeah, you, you chose to sin there, but you know, it's not a big deal to me. It's just a little thing, and yeah, we can, yeah, we can move on. He never does that. And we know he never does that because of Matthew 27, 46. It's a big deal, this thing called sin to God. And if it's not a big deal to us, brother, sister, if it's not a big deal to us, What that really betrays is how little we understand these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How little we understand about Jesus dying and what it meant for him and for God. So Jesus, again, he speaks these words so that we will never have to speak them. And we say, what love, what love. And then third there on your your note page, the the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do they not explain better than anything else can what was going on in Jesus' heart in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before the crucifixion? If you remember, Jesus leaves the upper room with his disciples and he he goes to the garden and, and he'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane right when he gets arrested. But before that happens, he is clearly in deep distress. He's in an agony of soul. And the disciples have never seen him like this before. And they're worried about him. And he goes to the garden and he prays. And and if you're in Matthew 27, just flip back one chapter into Matthew 26. Find verse 36. And here's what we read about this moment in the garden. This is very revealing. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We know the passage. We know the scene, don't we? We know it well. Brothers and sisters, what is going on here? Verse 38 says that Jesus' sorrow is so great that it brings him to the very precipice of death. The cross was almost not needed. So great is the anguish that is churning within the soul of Jesus on the night before he's crucified. Why? Why is that happening? Why is that true? Is it because he knows that he will have to endure a mock trial and uh, he'll, he'll, he'll be experiencing a beating and a scourging and, 
and, and, and the humiliation of a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and he'll have to drag a, a cross through the streets of Jerusalem as a condemned prisoner. Is that why he's of such anguish of soul in this moment? Is he agonizing over the thought of the brutality of the nails driven through his hands and his feet or the the insults and the abuse or the parched thirst or the physical pain and suffering that he's about to experience? Is that why he is overwhelmed in the garden? No. No, no, a thousand times no. He tells us what overwhelms him, does he not? In verse 38, it is sorrow. A sorrow so heavy, so black, so oppressive that it is crushing him in the garden, bringing him, as he says, right up to the edge of death. What is it that could produce such sorrow? It can only be one thing, and you know what it is. It is the knowledge that he will soon be forsaken by his father as he takes the world of sin upon himself forsaken by his father my god my god why have you forsaken me the thought of that nearly crushes the physical life out of jesus before he is even arrested did you know that and it's one of the special touches of god's sovereignty that the garden that jesus prays this prayer in on this night is called the garden of Gethsemane. Do you know what the word Gethsemane means? Do you know what that means? That means the olive press. That's what that word means. It's the place where the life of the olive is squeezed out. It's it's crushed out of the olive. The place is well named by God for Jesus' sake, I believe, on this night. Luke will actually tell us in his gospel that in in the account of Gethsemane that Jesus was in such anguish and such turmoil of soul that he was sweating profusely, breathing heavily. His heart is racing, but he is sweating so profusely that his, his sweat falls to the ground like great drops of blood. That was Luke's description. Almost like his life is being pressed out of him. Jesus knew that the cup he was about to drink would bring with it an abandonment and a rejection from his father that he had never known and could scarcely imagine. Not because he had done anything wrong, but brothers and sisters, because we had done everything wrong. And yet his great love for us moved him to pray in this crushing moment, not as I will, Father, but as you will, your will be done. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Helps me to understand Gethsemane's sorrow. He spoke those words so you and I would never have to. What love. And then these terrible crosswords of verse 46 reveal in a powerful way the central truth of our salvation. They They show us perhaps better than anything else ever could, our need for a sinless substitute to come into our life and to rescue us. You know, one of the things that I have observed and know you have too is just how passionate people are about justice. We have a thing about justice in our culture. You want to get people riled up? Tell them about some injustice that's been suffered by someone else and that'll get them mad. 
Because we do not like it when justice is not served and the guilty go free, right? We do not like that. And yet we're very familiar with that in our culture, aren't we? To the point that I believe there is in our, in our culture a national sadness over this issue of justice. Because so, so often it seems that our legal system does not accomplish justice. Those who do the crime many times don't do the what? They don't do the time. The prisons are too full. The guilty go free. Or the criminal can plea bargain down, right? They're guilty, but they can talk their way down to a lesser sentence. That's not justice. Or if you have the money, you can get a crafty lawyer who will find a loophole, and then you go free, right? You're guilty, but you're free. And all of that makes us angry. Justice matters to us. We expect justice, and we get angry when there's not justice. Well, guess what? If, if justice matters to us, how much more do you think it matters to God? <laughs> Infinitely more. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 says this. For the Lord is a God of what? Justice. Would you expect him to be anything else? Anything less? That's a declaration the Bible makes dozens of times. God is just. It's an aspect of his nature, an aspect of his character, just like love or faithfulness or holiness. He is a just God. And while our legal system breaks down all the time, God never breaks down. God is always just. If someone does the crime, someone's going to do the what? Going to do the time. Because God is just. In other words, if sin is committed, if we break a law that God has set, he doesn't just forget about that. No bargains are made. No plea bargaining goes on. No, no reducing the penalty. No getting some slick-talking lawyer to work it out with you and God. For him to allow any of that would be to compromise his character as a just God, and he's not going to do that. The truth of God's justice should make all of us who have ever broken one of his laws, and we've all done that, his justice should make us all tremble, should it not? And it would, were it not for the fact that God who is just is also God who is gracious and compassionate. Let me read the entire verse of Isaiah 30:18. I shared with you just a part of that verse. Here's how the whole verse reads. Yet the Lord longs to be, what's the next word? Gracious to you. He rises to show you, what's the next word? Compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. God is holy and he is just, but his love and his compassion move him to want to be gracious to the sinner. How can he be both to sinners, to, to, to lawbreakers like us? Someone who commits the crime has to do the time, right? Because he's just. Someone must pay the price or divine justice will be compromised. His character would be damaged. How can God be both just and gracious to lawbreakers? Well, the answer, in his infinite wisdom, the holy judge of the universe devised a way for his holiness to be preserved, his justice to be served, but also to, 
to allow his love to flow freely and grace to be poured out on sinners. And the way that he has provided is by a sinless substitute who would be willing to stand in the sinner's place. Who is that? It's Jesus. He can bear our penalty. He's sinless, but he's made sin so that we could be made sinless in the eyes of God. Someone's going to do the time for the crime, but it's not us. What love, what grace. God asked his son to be the substitute, and Jesus gladly accepted. 1 Peter 3.18, there on your note page. We'll put it on the screen because we're going to read this one out loud together too. Would you do that with me, church family? For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And we say amen and amen. My salvation, your salvation, rests squarely on the truth that Jesus, the righteous, takes our place. He becomes the substitute. He couldn't take our place without also taking on to himself our unrighteousness. So he takes our sin and its penalty upon himself. He satisfies the justice of God and at the same time enables God to set us free, removing us from the ultimate separation of our sin. If Jesus had not been willing to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would have to say those words. You would have to say those words. But because Jesus is willing to be our sinless substitute, we will never have to say those words. And we say, praise you, Lord Jesus. And all of that leaves us with a fifth and final truth that Jesus' fourth words show us, and that is just what a liar Satan has been and continues to be in our world. What a liar he is. The words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, expose His deadly lie. Satan has pushed off a lie onto mankind that basically goes like this. If there is a God, he will be so loving and so kind and so compassionate that he would never ever condemn people, even sinful people, to an eternal hell. That's his lie, isn't it? He just wouldn't do that. He's too, he just wouldn't. The lie was first voiced by Satan back in Genesis 3 when we were reflecting upon Sin separating effect a moment ago. Go back to that moment with me in your mind. God says to our first parents, don't eat of this tree or you will surely what? You will die. There will be a physical and a spiritual separation that will result from your sin. Do not do that. But Satan comes onto the scene and in Genesis chapter 3 verse 4 he says, you will not surely die, right? You won't die. Even Adam wanted to believe that lie, as have all of their descendants. We're all drawn to this lie, wanting it to be true, that sin doesn't really produce as its ultimate effect a separation from God that is devastating and eternal, but it does, doesn't it? And Matthew 27, 46 is the proof text for that. God's own son bore the full measure of that separation created by sin 
undeserved. He, he bore it. For you, for me, and his words, his anguished cry from the cross are, are all the proof we will ever need that Satan is a liar. He's a liar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is God's timeless testimony ringing down through the ages declaring that he hates sin, that he will deal with it either through his son or if we refuse to allow his son to be our substitute, he will deal directly with us and he is just. Many of you, perhaps most of you in this room have seen through Satan's lie. And we say praise be to you, God, for pulling the blinders off our eyes. We are sinners and we needed a substitute. And Jesus, you're my substitute. You stood in my place. You hung on the cross. You bore my sin. You became sin for me so that your righteousness could be imputed to my life. And when your father looks at me, he sees your righteousness. He doesn't see my sin anymore. And I have eternal life and a place in heaven with him forever. That's what you believe today? You believe that because Jesus was willing to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For you. He said it for you. But perhaps you are one who might be in our room this morning who still believes the lie that Satan is pushing on our world. You've been fooled into thinking that your sin is no big deal to God and that, that, that God loves you and he'll, he'll, he'll never send you to hell because he's a God of love. Well, Satan leaves out the part about God being just and holy. He leaves out that part. And so I would invite you, if you have been believing his lie, see Jesus hanging from the cross. See him struggling to breathe, parched, thirst, blinding pain, and read slowly the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Read them and understand that Jesus spoke these words so that you would never have to say them. That's how much he loves you. Romans 6.23, which we shared earlier, reads like this. For the wages of sin is death. But the verse doesn't end there. The gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so, so much that, that you love us enough to ask your son to die in our place. You put our sin on him and you give us his righteousness. How can we ever say thank you for that? It'll take eternity and that won't be long enough. But we will try. Let us say thank you to you now though. Through our song, through the table, as we bring our morning to a close, let us say thank you to you in the ways that we can. Our hearts overflow. Because you, Lord Jesus, said those terrible words so that we would never have to. We love you today, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people say, amen and amen.